Blog Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to Mama Chat featuring the Mamacrats, Cinematic, Megan Schuster Harvey, and Melissa Schober. I'm Donna Schwartz-Mills, also known as SoCal Mom. Today, we're going to try to not lick our wounds too much over last week's election, although the GOP is definitely dominating the news cycle right now. The Tea Party is flexing their muscles, Sarah Palin's got a new TV show coming out, and even George W. Bush is back. It feels just like 2007 again. But first, I want to talk about what's really important to me right now. Did you all hear the news this morning about the impending chocolate shortage? And let's see if we can get Sin and Megan on here, and Melissa, too. Let's see. This is... This is a real hang-up. I'm trying to get you guys online. Um, Sin, Melissa, are you able to to hear? I've got caller muted. Let's see if we can... Oh, there we go. Sin? Hi, I'm here. Oh, there you are. Melissa, are you there too? Yes. Or is this Megan? Okay. Well, Sin... Oh boy. Okay. okay. I I thought I heard something very staticky that that sounded like Megan. Well, it could be seven oh seven area code. Someone's online. Okay. Anyway, um, this is why I should have done more than one um practice one. So, did you read the thing about the chocolate? I heard about it, and I saw people tweeting about it, and um, I think that's horrible. We we can't run out of chocolate. You know, this is. I don't know how I would live. This is on the level of climate, global climate crisis. In fact, I think the two are probably related. <laughs> well, it it is kind of related to that. It is over farming, and it's very very labor intensive, and the farmers don't earn enough money. To be, that's why fair trade chocolate is such a great idea. Yeah, you know, I actually um, was watching a TED talk. You know, the TED, um, you know, those sort of wonky, brainy, um, informal video chats um, run through the TED organization. And one man was um, with the WWF, not the World Wrestling Federation, but the World Wildlife Fund, I believe. And um, he was talking about preservation of the rainforest in general and how we need to approach, um, you know, the top 100 corporations that are, you know, the main producers in each field. And just uh, as a side note, he mentioned that the Mars Company, which is behind M&M's, um, is, is doing a lot of work on actually, um, you know, trying to ramp up their fair trade um, and and sustainability in terms of chocolate production. So, um, you know, that was all in the context of talking about how if, uh, you know, sure, everyone has to change their light bulbs to CSL light bulbs, you know, everyone has to kind of do the little things, but he was really focusing on major corporations and trying to get them to change at that level because that's really where you're going to have, um, you know, widely scalable kind of um, impact on, you know, major producers of commodities like cocoa. 
So, you know, I thought that was that was a very interesting tack. And so hopefully if Mars Chocolate, um, you know, gets their sort of supply chain and their sustainability up and running, then we won't run out of chocolate in the future. Well, let's hope not, because the idea of chocolate costing as much as caviar is really frightening <laughs> to me. Um, we've got someone else who just joined us, 925 Area Code. Hey, Megan, you made hey. it. Hey. I came in just in time to talk about the devastating news about chocolate. (laughs) (laughs) I thought that was the kind of news that would really um, get to all of us because I don't know about you guys. I that's my drug of choice these days. Oh, definitely. I I smoked for years, and when I had kids, I quit, and that was it. Haven't had a cigarette in probably eight years. But that was completely replaced by chocolate, <laughs> completely. <laughs> so it it could be hard. Um, we've got another caller online, but that might be an actual uh, listener rather than um, one of our guests. 707 Area Code, are you there? Hi, Gina Cooper here. How are you doing? Oh, wonderful. Hi. Hi. Hey. <laughs> Yeah, it is devastating news about the chocolate, but you know it kind of gets into you know a lot of a lot of other bigger um, issues that we have going on. I mean, we have farm workers here in the United States that don't get paid at um, you know, at proper wages. A lot of that's related to the immigration de- immigration debate, and um, so you know it, it's really interesting how something we take for granted every day can be the kind of thing that you know, really the the roots of it, the roots of this problem, this chocolate shortage, you know, comes back to something that's really, really big and something that affects us every day. Yeah, I totally agree. That in fact that could almost be the silver lining of the idea of, of having a chocolate shortage is that because it is something that's so mainstream, it might be something that would actually get more people to read up and understand how how the whole process works. Farming it not just not just the United States, but around the world, it could that could be the positive. <laughs> well, there you go. It certainly got our attention, didn't it? <laughs> um, anyway, let's. Uh, Gina, you want to tell us? Um, well, actually, you know, Gina is kind of an unmarqueed um, guest, so we're really happy to have you here. I guess Sin um, contacted you to let you know we were doing this. We're going to move on to some pop culture talk. Oh, Did were we anyone? Gonna, um, uh, I hate to interrupt, Donna, but were we just going to go around briefly and introduce everybody? Um, sure. Let's let's do that. Go ahead. Okay. Well, um, I'm cinematic. I I blog a cinematic on Mamacrats, and I you know occasionally do. Uh, pieces for blog her. Um, I just recently covered some of the election uh, stuff, and um, the big highlight for me was attending the women's conference, actually with Donna SoCal Mom, and uh, together we broke the story of how uh, Meg Whitman basically torpedoed her own campaign by refusing <laughs> to take negative ads, her negative ads, quote unquote, off the air, and uh, you know it showed much less. Elon and um, Polish as a politician than Jerry Brown, who very smoothly said, oh, sure, I'll take them off if Meg takes hers off. <laughs> so that's, that's who I am. Uh, and I'm Megan Harvey. Um, I, I, that's how I post on Momocrats. And I also occasionally submit to blog her. And I also blog for a couple parenting blogs like Life360, ParentsAsk.com, 
And uh, you can find me on Twitter at Megan1018. And uh, Gina, please tell us. Um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm Gina Cooper. I'm probably more well-known as the founder of Netroots Nation, but now um, I'm more of a political strategist. And my website, I have to, um, my professional website is, is cooperstrategies.com. And my personal website, GinaCooper.com, and that's where I indulge all my opinions that are, you know, may or may not be safe for work and in a in a in a, in a naughty kind of way, but just something you might necessarily <laughs> want to like build your business around. But because you have a lot of opinions, and um, I learned about this this weekend, this past weekend here in San Francisco from uh, Cinematic at uh, the Netroots Nation California Convention where a lot of grassroots people got together um, through the state of California and talked about what was next. And I'm glad to be here. Thank you for inviting oh, me. Oh, we're happy to have you here. I mean, I can't, oh, definitely. you know. Yeah, yeah, that looks like such a great event here in California. You guys have done so much. I hope Sin told you that this is kind of a practice run for us, that this is our first uh Relaunch with the new format. So, um, well, it, I it's a for me too. And that um, um, I'm not really a mom. I'm not a mom. I just like moms, and I like kids. And I think that, that moms are just like you know. I, I think one of the problems with politics is that we don't actually listen to people in the in the way that they live their lives every single day. I, I do a lot of work in Washington, and to me, it's very frustrating to hear. Um, People kind of overlook the idea that you know, you know, yes, these issues are important. And that you know, what's more important to most people every day is taking care of their families, having a stable life, and and that it's that it's that politics is a very personal thing when we're talking about families. And so I'm very interested, very excited about being here. Very excited to um, be able to learn um, things from a different point of view. Yeah, we're definitely going to be talking about a lot of that, including the Netroots Nation sort of, you know, um, results or sort of highlights, you know, in a little while. So, you know, it's really good to have you here. Well, thank you for yeah. having me. It really is. And um, in case you guys don't know me, I am SoCal Mom. I write about uh, living in Southern California, and it's kind of a hodgepodge of things, but I've been a Democratic uh, member of the Democratic Party since I first started to vote in 1974, and I did cast my first vote for Jerry Brown. And so it was kind of fun to to cast the vote for him again, and um, kind of fun to watch him in action again because when um, Brown is running for office, I mean he's 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 never boring. You might not always follow what he's talking about, but he's not going to bore you. <laughs> what, did, what did you see as, you know, you said that was your first vote. I mean, what, what did you see that was, like, uh, the same or different? You know, I mean, I mean how, did this, how did this run compare to his last run? I mean, have you thought much about that? Well, I thought a lot about that because, obviously, he was a young man then and is an old man now, and I was a young person then, and I'm not so young now. Um, You have to remember that in 1974, it was the year after Watergate, and Ronald Reagan had been the governor for eight years. So, you know, it, it was a very, very different time. 
but I have to tell you that the tea party makes me nostalgic for that time. Uh, so, I mean, I never thought I'd say this, but I miss Richard Nixon. <laughs> wow. I know. He was someone who signed, who actually signed in the EPA, and that makes him look like a leftist today. That's how sad yeah. far right we've gotten, I, I, I have well, to say. Yeah, you know, they keep saying Obama needs to move to the center. Obama needs to move to the center. I've got news for them. They keep moving the center. You know, he is yeah. he is not a leftist and he's definitely not a socialist. It it cracks me up because it seems when he first announced he was running for president, I mean that's there were a lot of people who were saying he wasn't left enough. And it's just come such such a far extreme from then to now with the Tea Party. It's ridiculous. Well, the Tea Party is, is frightening to me because 30 years ago, their views were John Birch, Fringe, you know, and, and now they, they've, they have successfully positioned themselves as almost mainstream, and, and that is a very scary prospect. Yeah, the John Birch Society was an official co-sponsor of CPAC, which is like the big, you know, conservatives, uh, you know, sort of powwowing in, in D.C. with, you know, all their speakers and so on and so forth. And they really, you know, try to rile up the troops and so on and so forth. And so to me, that really is a, is an indicator. And, and I live in a part of um, Southern California, the San Gabriel Valley, uh, where, um, you know, one of the neighboring uh, communities, San Marino, had the – it's the site of the gorgeous, you know, Huntington Library and Museum and gardens. But um, I also did some digging around, and I found that San Marino was the uh, national headquarters of the John Birch Society at one point. So <laughs> – you know they they had to flee uh, Southern California when a lot of um, Latinos and Asians started moving in, and I'm proud to say that I'm Asian American and that uh, you know it, it, ple- it pleases me that San Marino is now 40% Asian American. Granted, <laughs> <laughs> these are very affluent you know people that you know are, are kind of at the uh, edge of any bell curve in terms of you know economics, so they're not exactly relatable in other ways. But um, just on that small level alone, I'm, I'm kind of pleased that they chased out the John Birch Society, and I think they ended up having to move their headquarters to Wisconsin. But, um, yeah, and, and I've, I've actually seen some punditry talking about how it was really the, the death of William F. Buckley that um, was one sort of small thing that kept, um, you know, these sort of hard right crazy forces under their rock, and then when he died, you know, they were able to crawl out from under that rock and really um you know take over um take over the the mainstream um GOP and and I think that maybe a case could be made that the GOP is terrified of what they've unleashed you know they've kind of made a deal with the devil and now we'll see whether um they buckle to the Tea Party demands and whether those Tea Party people the faction will be given you know spots in sort of GOP committees in the House and Senate, or the House, rather, um, and, you know, exactly what's going to happen. So it'll be very interesting, very interesting to see what goes on. You know, right now, this is Gina again. Right now, um, in, I don't know if y'all have been following this, but there's, uh, you know, Jim McNett, excuse me, Jim DeMent, um, who 
was um, a, a congressman who had – he backed a lot of the Tea Party candidates. And already one of the things that he's talking about is coming up in, and trying to eliminate earmarks, for example, which doesn't sound like a too terrible thing necessarily. But what's interesting about that is that um, Mitch McConnell is against that. So, you know, what you're talking about in terms of, you know, what this is going to do to the GOP, and, yeah, they're kind of terrified about it, is, you know, it's going to be really interesting. It's going to be watching – it's going to be interesting watching them battle their ideological battles that don't necessarily um, run it them with reality. But it's also going to be interesting to see if, you know, through some of their radical influence, if they're actually going to change a couple things that might be, might be pretty good or at least, you know, highlight them. So, um, it, you know, I kind of wonder so much, you know, how they started with the, with the John Birch Society and – you know, there was there was the whole sort of militarism that was that we heard a lot about in the beginning, and a lot of people picked up on joining in um, the Tea Party movement. And I'm wondering if that's going to tone down some of the radicalism, or if it's going to ramp it up, and people are going to be like, "Oh wow, I didn't know this is what I voted for," or you know, if they're going to get a sense of um, what it takes to keep power and keep you know, among their own caucus, keep, you know, the, the I don't know, the crazies a little bit quieter. So I, I, I'm really curious as to how that's going to pan out as well. Yeah. yeah well, Rand Paul has already flip-flopped yeah, I've been on, wondering on the, the earmarks. Thing. And, and, yeah. I think that, and I think that in some ways um, they're going to have to experience the letdown of governing, uh, you know, as, as opposed to the high-flown rhetoric of campaigning in the same way that we've had to on the left and with that also so yeah definitely interesting and maybe even some schadenfreude on my part <laughs> yeah well i need i want to interrupt this right now because melissa oh, i believe is online with us now melissa you there i am here hey welcome hey good to talk to Hi. you all i'm so sorry to be running a few minutes late that is perfectly all right as you can see we are chatting away We've thrown out the rundown for, for the time being, but that's okay because it's been an interesting conversation. Sin invited Gina Cooper of Netroots Nation to join us. So um, we're, we're really getting into the whole um, discussion about organizing and what's going on with, with the parties, with the two parties, and maybe three if you count the Tea Party as a separate party. So could you uh, have a brief I, I guess of... I guess I would have to count them reluctantly as as a as a third party. Um, I I wouldn't be thrilled. So I feel like that raises their stature, um, and and begins their britches even more than we want them to be. Well, can have a brief intro of Melissa because I know you've changed positions, Melissa, and it's nice. To sure, sure. Um, yeah, I'm I'm actually uh, on my lunch half hour um, from. Uh, one of my sort of satellite office locations. I'm I'm working for the state of Maryland now, and I should I should say that um, I'm commenting on this program not in any official capacity in any way, shape, or form. Um, but I work for the state of Maryland now, doing Medicaid policy. And um, previous to this position, I worked for a variety of nonprofits, mostly around reproductive and women's health in Washington D.C. Um, I decided it was time for a change when I had just come off of about 18 months of fighting around healthcare reform and some very late night meetings. And I have a young daughter, uh, and decided I would like to see a little bit more of her smiling face and a little bit less of 
um, grumpy, older, middle-aged folks um, and, and, their, and their staff wandering the halls at all hours of the day and night. Um, so we had about two months on the job with the current gig. Well, Melissa, one of the reasons it's really good to have you this time is that, you know, Medicaid is in the news in that Rick Perry has said that Texas is not going to be participating in the Medicaid program any longer. And I was wondering what you had to say about that. Um, Well, other than the fact that I opened the New York Times and almost fell out of my chair, um, (laughs) I think think it is an incredibly poor decision on Rick Perry's part, not too surprising given his gubernatorial record to date. Um, But... The the idea that you're going to drop out of a federal program, and and let's be clear, Medicaid covers what are the poorest, most needy people in America. In Texas, two-thirds of those covered by Medicaid are children, um, with a small percentage, less than 10%, made up of childless adults, and then a substantial portion made up of aged and disabled uh, disabled folks. most of what is spent in Texas on, on Medicaid, about two-thirds is spent on care for the aged and disabled. Um, Medicaid, unlike Medicare, um, doesn't just kick in when you're a certain age. You have to be truly impoverished um, at or below the federal poverty line. Um, in some cases, you can be somewhat above the federal poverty line, but the federal poverty line hasn't really been adjusted in any meaningful sense since the 60s. So essentially what Governor Perry is is proposing to do um, is to to kick off the poorest, most indigent people in need of care from a federal program in his state at a time when it is ever harder to get health insurance. And he's thinking about giving up federal match money. The way that Medicaid works is a state pays in a certain portion and the federal government kicks in the rest. In Texas, it's about a 60-40 split with um, the feds picking up um, the 60%, and it varies by how impoverished your state is. Here in Maryland, we get a 50-50 match. So if Texas gives up that federal money, if people don't have care anymore, they're going to end up in emergency rooms. And as we know, if you're in an emergency room, you have to be seen regardless of income. Wow. That's wow. mind-boggling. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, it's it's. And Texas is already suffering because uh, under the Deficit Reduction Act, when there were changes made to the children's health insurance program, that covers kids and families with incomes above federal poverty, but still not enough to buy private insurance. There were a lot more citizenship requirements imposed on uh, families to prove that they were legally in the U.S. Now, that's not a huge problem if you were legally in the U.S., but if your parents are undocumented, they might not really want to go to a local health department and bring you a perfectly legitimate birth certificate to be examined by a federal worker. Or if you were born at home, there are many instances in which it would be really difficult for a family, particularly transient migrant families who are um, involved in farming in Texas, to gather and have all those documents necessary under the Deficit Reduction Act to qualify for these programs. So you're talking about a downturn under that act anyway, add in this and the fact that Texas is dead last in the nation for number of children insured and, and you're you're setting yourself up for a bunch of kids who are not receiving any kind of meaningful care in their early childhood years. So are they is Perry using um like a t- 
Texas state budget deficit as a rationale in addition to his sort of just general secessionary mindset? Is he saying, like, we need to do this for budgetary reasons? Um, yes, I mean, clearly is. it's an attack on, um, you know, immigrant um, and you know, specifically undocumented people, but, you know, there, there are going to be a lot of white people in Texas who are affected by this also. Um, yes. Yes, that's true. About one in four people with insurance in Texas is covered under some sort of public program, be it Medicaid, Medicare, or the Children's Health Insurance Program. Mm -hmm. um, so we're talking about a pretty big cross-section of Texas. But, yeah, the excuse that is being put forth by folks in the state there is um, around the fact that Texas, like almost every other state in the nation, has a, a budget shortfall, and they do have to balance their budget. So they're arguing that it would save them I think in the neighborhood of $60 billion over some period of years, four or five years, um, to, to drop out of the Medicaid program. But, so but do you yeah, think there's a danger that other GOP-led states are going to follow Texas's lead on this? You know, not if they have any economists worth their salt on their staff in any way, shape, or form. Um, I think politically we're going to see a lot of spouting off about it, but, but I want people to, to remember that Again, what I said at the beginning, that Texas covers mostly children and the aged in nursing homes. And so unless the GOP want to become known for truly having death panels as opposed to the pretend death panels that they talked about with the Democrats' bill, um, I just don't think it's going to happen. I mean, nobody in their state wants to see a parade of elderly enfeebled persons um, being paraded out and saying, you know, this person's going to have to leave the nursing home because they're dependent on Medicaid for their care. So I think that there's going to be a lot of smoke, but um, actually not a lot of fire around this issue. It's just going to make it uncomfortable for planning, um, and, and I think I think it's going to detract from fixing the problem that Texas has, which is a quarter of Texas's citizens are uninsured and not receiving proper care, and really driving up healthcare costs. I totally agree. I was actually just going to make the same comment about the death panels. It it's totally unconceivable that they would actually be realistically looking at doing this. It just I can't see it actually happening, but then again I guess it I guess it could, but I just can't see them actually doing this. Do we get any traction out of uh putting forth the meme that Rick Perry is uh forming his own death panels? <laughs> um I I'd say that, that you know, it, it's something that around which traction could be gotten. I mean, I would really like to see him defend the fact that he would be, in essence, denying long-term nursing home care to impoverished people throughout the state. I mean, we're talking about elderly people who cannot afford the cost of nursing care, who don't have long-term care insurance, and their assets, by, in order to qualify for Medicaid, I mean, your assets are so very, very low, they have really almost nothing left. There's they get to keep their house if they're married because of spousal impoverishment. But, yeah, I mean, he's he's essentially saying, you know, go home and make what you will of care. Now, some people yeah. in the state have talked about doing a state-only program, um, but I, I, I really, in a state as big and rural and difficult as Texas, cannot see how that would happen. The only positive that could come from the whole thing would be that it would most definitely fail horribly and would be a prime example as to why that way of thinking is so horrific. <laughs> and it might help keep other states from making the same wrong choice, and it would certainly make 
the Tea Party series fall flat. Oh, my goodness. Those poor people. If, if, if Texas were sensible, and I wish Julie Piper were here so that, you know, our, our Texan, so that she could tell us how it is that we went from Ann Richards to Rick Perry. I mean, that would be a, a huge show in and of itself, how you know, <laughs> we, could, we could experience that slide. But I think what I'm concerned about, I mean, obviously, you know, there would be tremendous um, need to organize among the grassroots. Um, you know, this would, you know, involve a lot of um, pushback, you know, from from liberals, from people who have, you know, beating hearts and are humane, <laughs> um, you know, people who see just what a monstrous proposition this is. Um, but I, I think what I'm, I think what I'm a little worried about on a meta level is that um, <clears throat> it seems to be a pattern um, by Republicans to uh, make these kinds of appalling proposals, and then, uh, you know, we on the, the left or the, the liberals have to organize and combat it, and it, it kind of wears us down. You know, we we get pulled away from um, other other battles. Um, we get spread really thin. Um, our resources get, you know, really pulled down, and it's the kind of thing where, you know, suddenly we find ourselves battling this, and then um, Latino and other advocates, uh, you know, for children's health and so on and so forth, for the elderly, uh, you know, those kind of good grassroots folks um, get worn down, and before you know it, it's the 2012 elections, and no one has done any organizing around that, you know. So I'm sort of I'm, I'm worried on the basic level that you know, um, actual ser- there's the actual threat of actual services being taken away. But I'm sort of worried on a sort of meta level in terms of organizing and and looking at um, the kinds of resources that everyone just put into, say, the 2010 elections, and and worried that you know it's the kind of thing that could you know further. Um, just uh, you know, wear us down in terms of the resources that we have and the focus and the attention that we have. I think that's a great point, and and I would caution anybody from um, an advocacy strategy that is essentially shouting at the wind. Um, mm-hmm. And in, in this case, I, I think a, a big effort would in fact be shouting at the wind at this stage. At this point. It's mostly Governor Perry, you know, airing his ideological differences and waving his flag at CNN and a couple of other news media outlets, perhaps in preparation for his own 2012 run. Um, until Texas introduces a bill and until mm-hmm. that bill is scheduled for hearings and until that bill starts moving, I would really caution against a, a full-throated response from anybody on the left or more progressive movement. Um, I just don't think we need to trouble ourselves with what is an outlandish, ridiculous, and economically infeasible proposal from a governor with apparently no grounding in economic theory whatsoever. Um, I, I really would would urge people in Texas to focus on expanding healthcare through other resources and you know sort of wave their arm at Edward Perry's proposal until proven otherwise. I wonder, Melissa, if this is also a feint, because a feint meaning F-E-I-N-T as in, you know, ducking in boxing. Um, But, uh, you know, it's my understanding that, yes, we've had the federal um, health reform 
uh, law passed, but you know now the burden is kind of on the states to um, sort of carry the ball a little further down the field and enact exchanges. I know in California, for example, um, our legislature is blue, so they've been actually very active. The, both the Senate and the Assembly has been great about passing sort of what's needed to get exchanges going on the state level to sort of. Mm -hmm. Um, what the federal uh, law, you know, is laying out, and so I know a lot of a lot of states. Um, yes, they've had activist um, sort of right-wing attorney generals or governors or both saying that they're going to contest um, implementation of you know either all of the law or parts of the law having to do with, you know the personal mandate, uh, but that they're going to contest it on a legal basis, sort of fight it out in the courts and. And I'm wondering if this legislative piece is is going missing again. If progressives, you know, or um, folks who just want to make sure that you know their state is indeed kind of uh, you know stepping up to the plate on implementation of this law, that you know that piece is is going missing. That if we can focus on that and you know get the states to kind of do what they need to do um, through their legislatures, you know, if you feel that that's um, something of an issue. It, it is an issue. Here in Maryland, the governor has a health care reform coordinating council. My former home state of Massachusetts has a similar body. Many states have set up these governor's cabinets or coordinating councils or study bodies or what have you. But making sure that health reform moves forward and, and really pressing hard on that is, is incredibly important. Exactly what will be contained in the health information exchange in terms of sort of the very basic level plan, what benefits will be available to folks, is, is really something that's still very much up in the air. It's, it's based on what kind of insurance is predominant in your state and what kind of Medicaid benefits there are and a whole bunch of other things. So I think it is incumbent upon activists at this point to push for the inclusion of EPSDT services that's early periodic screening, um, diagnosis, and treatment for children, to push for the inclusion of contraceptives for women, uh, to push for the inclusion of, of annual screening for people with Medicare and Medicaid, um, to make sure that whatever basic benefit package is offered through that exchange, people are getting good preventative care. Because the only way that this is going to work economically, I think, and eventually politically, is, is really to have that basic benefit package be focused on prevention, um, medical homing, where you see one provider and they help coordinate your care, and the implementation of electronic health records to reduce medical errors. Mm -hmm. Yeah. My my impression, and this is just an impression, I'm cinematic talking again, um, is that uh, there was a big, big surge of grassroots activity to get the federal law passed, and then once that happened, um, my sense is that, you know, there's just been an ebb in terms of people's attention, um, maybe partly because, uh, you know, it seems as if the public hardly knows what's contained in the law, even after a lot of attempts to explain. And so, you know, activists may be at a, at a, at a, um, a loss to kind of keep this pressure on that you're talking about, you know, within each state and state by state. Um, yeah. To, yeah. Yeah. I think that probably the best thing for activists to do besides visiting our website um, is, is probably to, to take a look at some of the basic sort of pre-choose nicely, half-digested-for-you documents that some nonprofits have put out about what's coming along with the law. Mm -hmm. um, Health Reform GPS, which is a project of Robert Wood Johnson and uh, George Washington University, has some great, easy-to-read, like one- to two-page, very short documents. 
Um, and Trust for America's Health also has a really nice implementation timeline. I think the date that people need to keep in mind is 2014. 2014 is when both Medicaid expands and states get an increased match for those new folks joining Medicaid, and also when the health insurance exchanges go live. So we have a couple of years to breathe deeply after the long, long, long battle that was health reform. Um, so I don't want to encourage people to not think about it at all, but um, I think now is really the time to take a more intellectual approach and a policy-focused approach and talk about what is our dream for these insurance exchanges, what are the things that we desperately want versus can live with, and decide what is going to be our absolute bottom line for inclusion and use the, this year and perhaps a little bit of next year to really talk about what is our, our, our absolute best-case scenario and our absolute worst-case scenario, and then develop a plan of action from there. Gina, you mentioned the website. Could you repeat what the URL is? Uh, I, which, no, that, that, which, which website? My, um, are you oh, no, that, was, that was Melissa. I'm sorry. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, well, Melissa, I, are you talking about our website? Yeah, I'm talking about Mamacrats, and also um, I, I actually don't know the URL, but if you just Google health reform GPS, the letter G, the letter P, the letter S, um, up will pop a site from uh, Robert Wood Johnson and GW that contains implementation talking points, well, or I shouldn't say talking points. They can be easily developed into talking points. But um, nice fact sheets, brief blurb, uh, timelines, and um, some information on regulations. And it's a nice one-stop shop place for basic information. They're, they're not going to go into too much detail that's going to cause you to fall asleep while you're reading it on your sofa. Okay. I think it's just healthreformgps.org. Okay. That sounds great. We'll all put that in our bookmarks. Uh, and you know, with you that, bring up, I'm, I'm so sorry, okay, but I, I have to leave you all, and, and I will I will hope to catch up with you again soon, and I hope it was helpful. Oh, yeah. Oh, gosh, thank you for spending your lunch break with us. <laughs> no problem at all. Thanks so much. And enjoy the rest of your day. <laughs> thank you, Melissa. Wow, that was really... Um, I thought I'd put a little separation in there. Oh, okay. <laughs> I thought it was someone's phone. <laughs> I thought <just> No. <laughs> it's like the 15-second little musical bumper I found yeah. to, uh -huh. to try to make this all sound more professional, which right. I think we're going to need a few more shows before we get there. <laughs> no worries. I but, apologize uh, for talking over it. I, I thought that was really helpful, and I, I think, think um, just as someone, you know, who writes for Momocrats and, um, you know, always – trying to keep the big picture in mind in terms of what I post on, mm -hmm. you know, that it's it's good to know that we should really keep up the effort in terms of, um, you know, state to state and within state um, organizing, as, uh, as Melissa pointed out. So um, that's, you know, something that I personally will try to keep, keep blogging, keep as a priority, because um, I think very often, um, you know, we sort of, grassroots folks it just it goes issue by issue and then you know the emergency of the day comes up and that feels like priority one and we sort of forget that you know we need to kind of carry through um and, and there's still work to be done as, as melissa pointed out well i think that the the climate that we're going to face for the next two years is that they're going to keep trying to distract us 
with emergencies. Mm-hmm. You know, ISA announced that he wants to do like 280 different investigations next year. I heard about that. You know, when I saw that, <laughs> he did a, I tweeted out this response, which is, I think, well, first of all, and Gina, you can jump in too, um, given that you were at NetRoots California also, but I know there was some talk at NetRoots California this past weekend about how some of the worst uh, GOP folks in terms of obstruction and, you know, these sort of nonsense hearings are from California. And so it was pointed out that, you know, um, these bastards are a pain in the butt, but these are our bastards. These are California (laughs) bastards. And so those of us in California, especially since we seem to have experienced a little – um, you know, organizing and and advocacy success on the on the <clears throat> in terms of the 2010 elections. You know, we managed to c- kind of hold many many key seats blue. Um, we were the blue wall that stopped the red tide. You know, so uh, it was pointed out that we should really kind of give Daryl Issa and others like him, you know, some special love <laughs> from the left side. Mm-hmm. And I thought, you know, maybe something to do um, would be to have um, a c- citizens' hearings, citizens' hearings on Daryl Issa and his record, you know, <laughs> because maybe it's time to nationalize, uh, you know, who he is and what he's all about and the kinds of things he's done, you know. So I think that maybe something like that um, could, uh, you know, kind of refocus attention on who is this guy and uh, why does he think all these things are important to dig up, especially when um, it seems to me if you're going to have any hearings about anything, it would be about Bush, Cheney, Rumsfeld, and and the whole business of the illegal wars we've uh, been engaging in um, on their watch. Yeah, I, I think I think a really good point was made that um, well, well, I, I don't know if it was it was it was made, but there was, it was kind of uh, in the in the center of the conversation that you know when you know healthcare reform was being was being passed and they were talking about it in Congress, we had you know all this you know many national organizations just you know with their outrage trying to mobilize people by making them feel outraged and. And, you know, the point was brought up later that a lot of people don't know really what's in, in the health care reform bill. I mean, you kind of couple that with the idea that a lot of the provisions didn't take effect. And so because it didn't, I mean, because they didn't take effect for several months and some things haven't even taken effect yet, I think the exchanges that have come out in, what, 2012? But, um, you know, you end, up, you end up losing people. You can end up losing people that would, that, you know, care about this sort of thing, but, you know, they haven't seen health care reform actually impact their lives, and they haven't had time to react to the idea that it might be taken away. Well, in terms, you know, in their experience, they haven't even received it yet. So you're taking away something they don't even have, and so it's hard to, you know, build uh, uh, build a movement around something that just might be, and, and, that, and that's the way I think a lot of people see that. So when, you know, getting back to the idea of focusing at home, I think that, Republicans are really good at, and again, you know, showing this in Texas of, you know, oh, we're going to stop taking uh, funding for Medicare, I mean, or Medicaid. I mean, it's, it's, they are really good at getting us the panic about the outcome instead of focusing on the process of getting things done that we want to get done. And that's just kind of a, a theory that I see that I'm kind of developing on my own. I'm not really sure 
but, you know, it seems like that, you know, once the week got it passed that everybody kind of was exhausted and stopped. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We're, we're reacting a lot, you know. But mm-hmm. How do we change things so that we are driving the agenda rather than reacting to the craziness that they keep purporting? You know, I, I would like to just see a blanket law you know, bill be um, introduced any time that someone is contemplating taking away an entitlement that um, it means that for legislators, their entitlements disappear also. Yeah. <laughs> that would be yeah. great. You know, and, and I would just kind of like to see that be like the conversation stopper, uh, you know, in Congress. <laughs> um, you know, but I don't know if that would actually have an impact but I, I kind of feel like we need we need something of that nature to just sort of um neutralize a lot of the sort of busy busy work panic that um the GOP seems to be planning for the next for the next year years. to cover up the cover fact up that the they, fact have, they no have no policy, policy. you know I think there's yeah. a, there's there's an element of elitism that's attached to that that whole thing. I mean, I think that there are, you know, most of our most of our senators and Congress people. I mean, especially our senators are very wealthy people, and you know, they feel like you know they work hard, and so therefore they're entitled to their rewards. And there's a lack of respect for the work that other people do that don't necessarily pay a lot of money. Right? We're getting right back to the chocolate shortage, and that we don't appreciate the work that people do, and feel like that it's work that should get rewarded, not just, you know, material success being rewarded with more material, um, with more material rewards. Yeah. I I really wish that we had gotten back to that original idea of all of us opting into the kind of health care that our federal employees and the and the congressmen and Republicans, I mean the Republicans, the, the senators all have. You know that was a that was a good idea. Have us tied in with them. You know, have you has, has anybody here ever applied for a federal job? And, my, and, and this, this my mother actually was a federal employee. Um, this is cinematic, and she um, she is a cartographer, a map maker, and she actually applied for a federal job and got it with um, what was then called the Defense Mapping Agency. Um, so it was actually like a branch of the military, and it was map making for um, military purposes. So she actually had a security clearance, and they I remember when they went around um, the place where we lived, and they put like these little flyers in in our neighbors, uh, you know, door, mailboxes, and and they conducted all these interviews to uh, make sure that she was. You know, not a spy. <laughs> a sort of, you know, older Chinese lady, uh, immigrant Chinese lady. <laughs> Definitely not a spy. Um, but uh, yeah, that's sort of my one experience with um, someone that I know directly who was a federal employee. My my grandfather worked for Lockheed my whole life, and my other grandfather was a postman. So, kind of government jobs are kind of in the family. <laughs> Well, I had like a real, I had some really interesting conversations with, you know, again, I have a, I have, like all of us, you know, we have friends in Washington and friends in the federal government, and just talking about the system of what it takes to actually hire somebody in the federal government, and one of the things that just like kind of blew me away is that the process of from when 
um, applications are closed to when they actually can get to the point of hiring is like 120 days. And somehow I feel like that, you know, all this, this bureaucracy that, I mean, because that's bureaucracy. I mean, I mean, 120 days. Can you imagine any other normal business having to wait 120 days from, hmm, okay, I'm going to post this job opening, give people a couple weeks to apply for, and then 120 days later I'm going to hire somebody to fill this need. And it, it, it just, I don't know, it, it, again, it just kind of blows me away that, you know, and again, this, this, you're talking about federal um, health insurance or health insurance that federal employees enjoy that, you know, it's it's like there's a system that doesn't seem to acknowledge that there's any other way to do things but to be bureaucratic. And I, I don't know, again, if that almost goes back to, you know, we have these legislators who are willing to vote to get rid of health insurance for um, poor people and that they're like, well, you know, this is the law, this is the process, and, you know, I went through the process and I made it happen, and so therefore people agree with me. But, you know, this, there's a helplessness on the part of everyone else of not being able to navigate the bureaucracy, and that ends up giving a certain amount of power to do crazy stuff, I guess, by the government. And I don't know. <laughs> it's just something that I just find just really interesting as we're talking about, you know, you know, we have tea partiers talking about the making government more efficient and smaller and this and that and everything else. But, you know, it's it's not just a matter of where money is spent and so therefore if we cut off poor people that everything will be better. It's about it's about the way we operate and they are just as much a part of that system as as anybody that works for the federal government. That's true. That's true. Um, we've got about 10 minutes left on the show, um, and I didn't want us to stop before we um, went into our news story of the week. And, Sin, you were going to introduce that segment about the people in Weston. You know what? Sin's gone. We oh, did we Sin. lose her? We lost Sin. <laughs> I wonder what happened to her. So anyway, okay. Um, I don't know if anybody else caught this news, but we were really delighted to read about the people of Weston, Missouri, who when they were having a um, a funeral of one of their servicemen, um, they were going to be hijacked. It was going to be hijacked by that horrible Westboro Baptist church that comes and, and demonstrates against gay people at servicemen's funerals, which doesn't make any sense at all to me. And no. the people in Weston manage to keep them out by all of them showing up and taking up the corner and making it impossible for them to have their demonstration. And I just thought that was a wonderful story, how the whole town just kind of got together and said, no, we're not going to let them um, ruin this, this poor families. It, you know, I, it's, it, oh, go ahead. Well, to me, this sounds like, I mean, it, it, it's a, a classic case of the way, you know, of, of, of the way that, you know, 
liberals or people, or most people see people as people, not just liberals. Most people see exactly. people as people. Yeah, other people see people as instruments to be able to, you know, as a, as a chance to be opportunistic. And so, you know, whether you are on, you know, whatever you whatever it is that you feel about homosexuality, you know, that's that's for you to make your opinion. But you know, the fact that you overlook the fact that you're dealing with human beings and are somehow treating them as less than you, less than somebody else who deserves dignity is is kind of sick, uh, I think. And, you know, good for the people who stood up for that. You know, they were standing up for a family, standing up for a person. They were honoring, you know, a person's works, their duties, the things that they did to contribute to our nation. And, you know, whether, you know, I, I'm for people that, were participating in in the in the blockade, keeping keeping out who may not be sure how they feel about that situation. I mean, we're talking about Missouri, right? But mm-hmm. you know, at the time, they recognize their own humanity, and that's what seems to be missing so much from our political system, so much from some of the you know overzealous acts we find on the right is just lack of knowledge acknowledging the humanity of others. I and totally it looks like agree. back. Oh. <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm back. <laughs> Go ahead. Uh, I was I was going to say, you know, it seems like the more we hear about these these group this group who lacks any human decency. I mean, really, that's the bottom line. And 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 like Gina was saying, I mean, it, that goes so far beyond partis, partisan politics or or anything like that. And it seems the more we hear about these protests that we that they do all over the country, the more we're hearing about communities, no matter what side of the political spectrum they fall on, stepping up and saying no to that lack of human decency. It's becoming less about partisan politics or even the social issues and just about basic human decency. And it's refreshing to see that no matter what community, whether it be Palo Alto, a fairly liberal community that Westboro came to last year, to protest the, I, I believe it was protest some teenage suicides that had occurred to to military funerals. Either way, more people are standing up saying, "Get get out of our community. We we want some human decency back." Yeah, this was. Um, I don't know. When I read the news, when I saw the news report, it just brought tears to my eyes because it was. You know, people have felt so powerless against mm-hmm. this kind of thing. And, it, you know, it started with the Operation Rescue People and, mm-hmm. you know, just making it very difficult to to carry on with something that is really a private and personal event and turning it into a big political brouhaha that has nothing to do with, with what it was about. And it's just so hurtful. Mm-hmm. So, I, who Who protests a funeral? I mean, what I don't understand. What takes? What is it inside of you that makes you think your cause is important enough to do something like that? It's beyond me. I mean, so I wonder that's if it's, a million-dollar question. I wonder yeah, if it's what, like what is it people. that's in these people's heads? <laughs> I mean, I wonder if it's kind of evangelical related that, like, okay, this person was gay and he's dead and I, I, he's going to hell and you're going to go to hell too. I mean. You know, are they trying to recruit? I mean, what is it that they're trying? I don't understand what they're trying to say. You know, and yeah. if they're trying to say that, which is what it—that's the closest thing I can come up with. Then, you know, who made you God? You know, who made you the supreme judge of, of what's moral and what's not moral, and who gets into heaven and who doesn't? You know, if you believe in that kind of thing, which apparently they do. So, 
I say, you know, if you're twisted backwards thinking is so much that you think anyone who's homosexual is automatically going to go straight to hell and you're you actually consider yourself a Christian, that's your belief. Well, you know what? Go to church, light a candle, say a prayer for those people and leave it at that. That's how you feel. Keep it to yourself, keep it in your church, say your prayer for their souls and leave it alone. You don't need to go around with signs degrading people and just and and hurting families who are grieving. I mean, it's it, it's the most unchristian thing that I think exists in this world. There's there's Amen. nothing. It's, Amen. Yeah. <laughs> and it's so, I mean, I grew up in the South. I went to Catholic schools all the way through college. I ended up teaching high school for 13 years in a district that was, was the home to the largest evangelical Christian church in Tennessee, um, it just, you know, one of the very first early mega churches. And, you know, I, I want to say, you know, do you actually read your Bible? Because if you're if you're going yeah. to get going up against, you know, people who are homosexual, and you're, I think it, I think they quote like one verse, something that happens in the Old Testament. You know, you need to go mm-hmm. protest black people, and you need to go protest the rich people, and you know, at their funerals and that sort of thing. Because you know, the Bible says a whole heck of a lot more about you know gluttony and greed and mm-hmm. you know unkind to others. I mean, you know, why is it that you're taking out your, you know, your your fervor, you know, expressing this on, you know, somebody that's dead in their families? I mean, you know, do do something, you know, be consistent if you're going to mm-hmm. be that way. I I don't suggest anybody really being that way, of course, but it's just, it's, it's, it's so inconsistent that, you know, you're left with wondering what the motivation is, and the only motivation you come up with is hate. Yeah. What I really found so inspiring about that Western Missouri story also was just the way that the people of the community organized. I mean, it was it was mm-hmm. it was a triumph of decency and and the community coming together to protect that one family, but it was yeah. also a triumph of organizing because they stood they planned, you know, they knew where the Westboro Baptist Church was going to be, what corner, and they stood there and they planned and they brought like huge a huge flag. Sorry if you guys already discussed this while I um was off yeah. uh line, yeah. but um but but that's what I thought was also so wonderful that in their grief and in their sorrow that they shared with the family um of this service person that they that they also like got down to brass tacks and planned out their response and that was what chased off these horrible people from uh as you say Megan um you know protesting at a funeral i mean what yeah. a, what a crazy absurd loathsome thing to do to make your political statement at someone's funeral and 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 so what i thought was so wonderful was just the way that you know good community organization and good communication okay. Defeated, you know that um, that uh, attempt to grandstand at someone else's you know, private event. We are we have like thirty seconds left, so I want to thank you and Gina Cooper and Melissa Schober and Megan Schuster Harvey for for joining <laughs> us for our first thank pilot you. program, and uh, we're going to try this again next week. So I hope anybody listening here will tune in and um, thank you. Thanks for hosting, Donna. Thank you, Donna, for putting it all together. (laughs) So great that you joined us, Gina. Thank you, Gina. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.